Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Let's go back to the fall of 1944. First Canadian Army in Northwest Europe has just wrapped up combat in France and Canadian soldiers have gained immense battlefield experience. One branch of 1st Canadian Army in particular that gained valuable experience in dealing with liberated civilian populations was civil affairs. The men of civil affairs were confident as the army marched into liberated Belgium. But Belgium would provide a whole new set of problems, specifically a fractious and angry resistance movement as hell-bent on fighting each other as the Germans and none too happy to be ordered about by their new liberators. This is Season 6, Episode 11, Laying Down the Law, Canadian Civil Affairs and the Belgian Resistance, 1944 to 1945. So the episode this week is actually an excerpt from a book. In fact, my book, which is coming out in a couple of weeks. The excerpt is drawn from chapter three of that book. The book's title is Civilians at the Sharp End, First Canadian Army Civil Affairs in Northwest Europe, 1944 to 1945. The book is being published by McGill Queen's Press and can right now be purchased for pre-order on Amazon. The excerpt comes from Chapter 3, Death from Above in Belgium, and basically explores the civil affairs experience in Belgium. I hope you enjoy. So let's begin with the strategic picture. September 1944. Antwerp was one of the most important objectives for 21st Army Group because after its breakout from Normandy in August, its supply lines became more and more strained as it rapidly moved eastward, increasing the distance from its supply bases along the Normandy coast. Bernard Montgomery, 
commanding officer of 21st Army Group, needed to capture port installations in order to support its continued push through Belgium into the Netherlands and eventually into Germany. Although northern France had several good ports, including Le Havre and Boulogne, Belgium's port of Antwerp was the second largest in Europe at the time, and its facilities were crucial for Montgomery's drive across northern Europe. First Canadian Army was given the responsibility of making sure Antwerp's ports were running. To do this, First Canadian Army needed to first clear the approaches to Antwerp via the Scheldt estuary and then keep the city and its labor force functioning. Now, most of Belgium was liberated fairly quickly. The American First Army pushed hard towards the towns along the Meuse Valley, while the British Second Army captured Brussels and moved quickly into Antwerp in early September 44. First Canadian Army units not involved in clearing northern France's channel ports, that is 4th Canadian Armored Division and 1st Polish Armored Division, maintained momentum along the western flank by capturing Bruges and Ghent on 9th September 1944. By mid-September, most of the country was free from German occupiers. Now, a portion of eastern Belgium would not be fully liberated until February 45. Generally, though, Belgium's citizens took to the streets to celebrate liberation had arrived. The Allies' speed and efficiency during Antwerp's recapture, with help from a very proactive Belgian resistance, meant that the port installations were taken relatively intact. Canadian troops were still forced to fight the Germans for months in the seaward approaches to Antwerp, this is the Scheldt estuary, in order to allow the Allies to safely use its superb facilities. Once these approaches were cleared in early November 44, the port was now ready to receive the full brunt of Allied shipping. Now, the machinations of the various resistance groups in Belgium reflected a growing tension and lack of confidence in the ruling government led by a man named Hubert Pirlo. Resistance groups in all the liberated countries presented difficulties for military personnel and primarily those of the civil affairs branch, who often found themselves the liaisons between these groups and allied forces. In Belgium, however, Canadian civil affairs officers dealt with some of the most fractious and non-cooperative resistance groups of any liberated country. Reporter Robert Eunsen, writing for The Globe and Mail in Belgium, wrote, A former Brussels newspaper reporter who heads the resistance movement in Belgium is challenging the leadership of Premier Hubert Pirlo. Chief of these challenges is his charge that the government has been wholly ineffective in dealing with collaborators and is even friendly with them, and that the resistance in Belgium opposed any government coming back from exile to take over a country in which resistance members lived and fought during the occupation. One civil affairs report put it bluntly, the resistance groups are active, armed, and vindictive. The primary Belgian resistance groups were the Independence Front, the Belgian Legion, the White Guard, the Musketeers, 
and the National Liberty Front. These resistance networks were politically motivated and often directly opposed to one another. This was quite different than the situation in France, where resistance groups were relatively unified in their fight against German troops and generally cooperated with the Allies to rebuild their heavily war-damaged country. Belgium's swift liberation, however, resulted in a restless and less-than-unified spirit amongst the various resistance groups. These groups were politically divided and lacked any sort of umbrella organization to unite them. Generally, participants in the Belgian resistance movement were amateurs. They were ill-equipped to fight the Germans in open warfare and lacked any training in the subtleties of guerrilla combat. As one historian of Belgian resistance groups writes, these men often showed themselves to be woefully ineffectual and were nothing more than a motley crew. Disorganization and the unruly nature of most groups caused civil affairs officers and the Belgian government significant problems in reasserting law and order. Belgian resistance groups began causing trouble by arresting and punishing suspected collaborationists. In some cases, the resistance arrested or punished rival faction members under the pretense of persecuting collaborationists. To further complicate matters, the terms of the agreement between the Belgian government in London and the governments of the United States and Great Britain had not been published or sufficiently circulated. The text of the Belgian law against collaboration had not been seen by anyone. This meant, of course, plenty of room for interpretation. In one instance, two Belgian civilians sought safety with Major Van Dyck, the public safety officer for Civil Affairs Detachment 619 in Saint-Nicolas, after they had been badly beaten up for working with the Germans during the occupation. Major Van Dyck reported that a female friend of the two was also in hiding after half her hair had been cut off and the other half fairly well torn out for sleeping with the German. Major Greer, 1st Canadian Army Civil Affairs Public Safety Officer, visited a prison in Termont that housed 1,500 inmates. Many of these inmates had only recently been arrested and had yet to stand trial. No one running the prison had any clear idea how to prosecute the prisoners. There was no legal precedent. Subsequently, Greer wrote, It is becoming more and more urgent to obtain the text of the law on collaboration. Without any centralized authority, many groups took to enforcing their own particular brand of vigilante justice. Various resistance groups exploited the breakdown of law and order by purging suspected collaborationists, settling old scores with political rivals, and engaging in a variety of other illegal activities including arson, theft, murder, and general brigandage. A 1st Canadian Army Headquarter report from November 1944 expressed concern that certain groups within the resistance movement remained a potential threat to military operations, especially because the Belgian police, the gendarmerie, were depleted in numbers and arms were lacking. Many late recruits 
to resistance organizations, nicknamed the September Resistance, had joined only prior to liberation and in light of the impending German retreat. These were some of the most ill-disciplined of all resistance members. In one instance, four supposed members arrived at the headquarters of two Canadian corps with their leader reported as wearing, and I quote, a bastard sort of officer's uniform. This leader informed Lieutenant Colonel Walker of two Canadian Corps Civil Affairs that they had been told their petrol and supply needs would be looked after by the Canadians. Walker curtly informed them otherwise, and they left. As the war diarist wrote, they were a most unpleasant group and might have come straight out of a Hollywood gangster picture. Folks, I want to take a second before we continue to let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option of donating one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So if you want to donate like five bucks for every episode we publish, Well, Patreon allows you to set that up. We survive exclusively on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, on our Facebook page, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all podcasting platforms, you can leave us a rating, you can leave us a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. And thank you to all who have donated. We could not keep doing this without you. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. An incident in September 1944 highlighted how Canadian civil affairs officers would intervene on behalf of the Belgian civil authority when resistance groups posed serious challenges to stability. In the city of Ypres, the mayor, or what was known as the burgomaster, encountered trouble while attempting to establish proper control over three different resistance groups operating in the historical city. These armed and organized groups arrested numerous rival faction members and alleged collaborationists. Furthermore, some group members began seizing the cars and property of those deemed collaborationists. Essentially, Armed gangs calling themselves resistance roamed the streets. The local police force, which had only recently been organized, was unarmed and, besides directing traffic, could play no real role in establishing order. Ypres was disintegrating into districts controlled by armed factions, and although the burgomaster attempted to restore proper authority, the various factions continually ignored his appeal for cooperation. Thus, he was forced to call on the Canadian Army for help. Shortly after this request, Colonel J.J. Hurley, Senior Civil Affairs Officer 4-2 Canadian Corps, arrived at Ypres and took the law into his own hands. He first ordered his men to collect all weapons held by unauthorized persons. Groups of five to ten armed Canadian soldiers drove lorries out into the various districts to personally collect the weapons, from the various armed factions. Subsequently, Hurley held a meeting with the various faction leaders, explicitly stating that the burgomaster was the only recognized allied authority in the city 
and that the various factions were to either place themselves at the burgomaster's disposition and help him in every way possible, or be removed from any positions of authority. As the war diary reported, these orders seemed to settle the matter. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Similar unrest existed in Roulet, where reports of a communist riot and tension amongst various resistance groups led to an intervention by Major Greer, the senior civil affairs officer in the town, along with his head of security, Captain Morrison, as well as Lieutenant Marchant of Civil Affairs Detachment 306. After initial investigation by the team, it was discovered that the new town burgomaster, having been removed by the Germans in 1941 and having held his current appointment for only one week, was unable to exert any control over the troublesome groups. As well, the gendarmerie were attempting to control all the armed factions in the city, but the job was almost impossible for them owing to unemployment, unrest, which was all increasing in the city. After the Canadian officials discussed matters with the burgomaster, Greer asked him to call a meeting of the various faction leaders. As Colonel Hurley had done in Ypres, Major Greer emphasized at this meeting that the Allies recognized the burgomaster as the only authority in Roulet. Greer offered a veiled threat to those resistance leaders who might be considering resisting the burgomaster's attempts to establish law and order. Greer left Lieutenant Marchand to deal with any aftermath from this meeting, but Marchand did not file any further incident reports. Lieutenant Marchand did, However, comment on the general political situation in Belgium, stating that Roulet's drama was no worse than it was in the whole of the country. Most of the male population was now armed, and certain groups, especially the communists and the Belgian army, were very active. All political parties in Belgium were trying to take advantage of the situation to secure power and to prevent their competitors getting ahead. Communications with the capital were bad, and directives lacked in vigor or authority. Lieutenant Colonel Shepard, who was commanding Detachment 320 in Ghent, echoed these same concerns when he reported that the situation in East Flanders was very delicate and, I quote, capable of producing a most unpleasant situation. Interestingly, when these concerns were illuminated to 1st Canadian Army Headquarters, they were deemed alarmist in nature, and 1st Canadian Army Civil Affairs had supreme confidence that, and I quote, the government recently installed in Brussels would prove strong and popular and would get an increasingly firm grip on the situation. 
This confidence, however, was misplaced. Regardless of the impression given at 1st Canadian Army Headquarters, two Canadian Corps detachment commanders often intervened to prevent resistance-initiated violence from escalating. In Eclou, a Belgian soldier on guard duty tried to stop a car full of partisans, essentially the combat element of the resistance. After challenging the group and receiving no response, the guard opened fire and he killed one of the partisans. Later that night, the group returned with more than 100 supporters bent on revenge. Major Norton, who was the commanding officer of the local civil affairs detachment 629, and the man who had ordered the Belgian soldier to stand guard in the first place held a meeting at which partisan leaders were present and dressed them down fully. He emphasized that he supported the guard for doing his duty and threatened severe action on any civilians who retaliated or independently acted because of this incident. His threats worked and no retaliation was sought. Now, part of the problem with widespread lawlessness was rooted in the fact that the police was not fully armed and resistance groups completely outmanned and outgunned them. As one historian succinctly wrote, the Belgian state entirely lacked the means to impose its will on the resistance. In October 1944, Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force estimated the resistance had 85,000 fighters, while there were just more than 8,000 national police members and approximately 12,000 local police. Belgian authorities continually assured senior Canadian officers that they were working to properly equip local police forces and that speedy enrollment into the Belgian army should provide sufficient control for the younger and more irresponsible elements. Not until early October did the equipment problems begin to be ameliorated and local police forces begin to exercise proper local authority. The Allies had to intervene to help the Belgian government disarm many of the resistance groups, an order issued by Pirlo himself on November 13th. Twelve days later, communist resistance groups organized a mass protest outside of the Belgian parliament buildings in response to this forced disarmament. The crowd, in fact, attempted to force its way into the square facing the parliament building, while Allied soldiers and tanks looked on, the police opened fire, wounding 35 of the protesters. While this event could certainly have triggered more protests and challenges to Belgian authority, the presence of Allied military personnel limited any blowback. While this event was another damaging blow to Pirlo's authority, there was, in the aftermath, widespread acceptance of the disarmament order. By early December, 30,000 weapons had been handed in to the government. Concurrently, the Belgian army's recruitment drive also helped reduce the power of the resistance groups as it successfully drew the youngest and most active elements from the various resistance groups, 40,000 young men in all, being recruited by the end of 1944. Finally, 
civil affairs officers' active involvement in dealing with unruly activity aided the Belgian government tremendously, and by the end of that year, almost all mention of resistance group problems ceased in the war diaries. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.